Um, we had such a lovely evening last night catching up with our dear friends in this church and having many uh, good laughs and meeting some new faces as well. And um, to be here this morning is a real joy and encouragement as well, to see the way that God has grown you. There are so many faces that I've never seen before. And uh, just to see what God is doing among you, it really is a joy. Um, the gospel is bearing fruit around the world, isn't it? Um, it's growing in Leeds as well, and we just want to encourage you with that. Uh, we went to two gatherings two years ago. Um, it was hard graft, um, but we've managed to keep that uh, other gathering going. So really want to thank you um, for your prayers. I know some of you have been praying for us over in Leeds. And uh, I bring greetings from Uganda as well. I was in Uganda last month, uh, and uh, right in northern Uganda, and just visiting some churches there uh, that want to become part of New Frontiers. And the gospel is growing over there. In fact, there are some phenomenal stories going on. Um, there was uh, one uh, guy I was speaking to, and they wanted to plant a church into a new village and um, they realized in this village in that context uh, everyone there was worshiping a snake uh, as you do um, and um, I, I thought talking snakes were just in the book of Genesis and in the jungle book um, but in this little village uh, this snake that they worshipped would talk apparently many people had seen this happen this uh, un very unusual phenomena um, so a few people who were planting this church into this village decided to pray and fast and they prayed and fasted for three days and on day three the snake died <laughs> and um, so this friend, my friend Christopher, he was arrested and put into prison for killing the, these villagers' God. Um, I kid you not. And uh, he was eventually released when he said, come on, you know, if that was a real God, it would have killed me. And they were like, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Uh, they then tried to burn him alive, the local villagers. Um, but then actually many um, came to faith in Christ as they recognized your God is more powerful than ours. And this guy, Christopher, is continuing to plant churches, 13 churches around northern Uganda. This man, he cycles. He's an apostle on a bicycle. Uh, he cycles um, many, many hours to go and encourage these churches. He was telling me how he has to take three shirts with him because he sweats so much as he's cycling to go and uh, share the love of Christ to these different villages. So just want to encourage you. Leeds, Liverpool, Uganda, it works. The gospel works and it brings uh, life and truth uh, to people all around the world, wherever you're from, whatever you're up to. And I, as um, Tor mentioned, I'm so encouraged uh, that you guys are embracing this one objection uh, idea, the whole idea of if you had to have just one objection to the Christian faith, what would it be? And I, I've heard that you guys have been asking friends, family, uh, people on the streets. Maybe you've been uh, invited along today to come and hear a response. Just want to express a really warm welcome to you. If you're here visiting, maybe uh, your objection is being answered today. You're in the right place. You're so warmly welcome uh, with us um, this morning. Uh, we did this uh, in Leeds. Uh, we asked a few hundred people. And um, we the top objection that came back in Leeds was there's not enough proof. So that was an interesting one to hear. And one of the top ones as well was all the suffering in the world, which uh, according to Chris Butland is your top one. Uh, over a quarter of the people interviewed that you guys asked, their top objection to the Christian faith is all the suffering in the world. I think more ink has been spilled on this subject than any other when it comes to uh, discussing apologetics. Apologetics meaning defending the Christian faith. 
face. And there's a bit of a sense of irony with it because it's almost as if the less suffering we experienced in the West, the more this has become an issue uh, in our culture. Uh, it's almost as if the less we suffer, the less equipped we are to deal with suffering. If that makes sense. Uh, I suppose you could also argue, though, that actually we are now exposed to more suffering in our world than ever before. Uh, we get instant uh, updates uh, about tragic things happening all around the world instantaneously. To summarize this objection, um, you could say this. If you believe in a God that is all-loving, and if you believe in a God that is all-powerful, why does he not stop the suffering in this world? And that's a good question. We as Christians, we believe in a God who's all-loving, and we believe in a God who's all-powerful. So the question does come, why then does he allow so much suffering? Stephen Fry, uh, who presents uh, QI, do you, any fans of that? Uh, an intellectual, uh, he said this back in 2015. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, someone who changes their mind, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Quite a stinging, confrontational question. I guess if I had the privilege of meeting Stephen Fry and trying to respond to his question of why he should respect a God that allows suffering, I might ask him, why as creatures do we have a moral understanding of justice? Where does it come from? Evolution, if we say that that's where we came from, depends on death, destruction and violence of the strong against the weak. Why does suffering, why does pain feel so wrong? Why, Stephen Fry, are you so angry? <laughs> why? In fact, a guy called Alvin Plantiga um, put it like this. If you think there is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Okay, so if someone came to me and said, well, you know, why does God allow suffering? I would say, well, well why is suffering such a big issue for you anyway? The sense that we don't like pain, the sense that there's something wrong with the world is actually a good argument in itself for the goodness and existence of God. Um, and actually, God often uses suffering in our life to help us ask these big questions. Um, so C.S. Lewis uh, put it like this. Uh, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Those are just two little thoughts before we get into the real crunch of the topic. Two little aperitifs, if you like. But when it comes to suffering, I, I think the best answer, the best defense a Christian has is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. We see in the cross that Christ comforts us, that Christ challenges us, and that Christ calls us. So we're going to look at these three subjects. How does the cross comfort us? I don't know if anyone here has read the poem, The Long Silence. I'd like to read this poem to you. It goes like this. 
At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? snapped a young girl. She ripped open her sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture and death, she said. In another group, a young man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most. A Jew, someone from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a Verhaldemai child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured flogged, scourged with a whip, mocked, spat at. Then let him be totally alone, deserted, and then in extreme agony, let him die. As each loud leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. God is not immune to suffering. The cross comforts us with this understanding. When it comes to suffering, Christians aren't trying to get God off the hook because the fact is God put himself on the hook. He put himself on the cross. Uh, Eusebius, uh, who was a third century historian, he described dying by the cross like this. The sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews and bowels of the victim were opened to exposure. 
He was then taken to the Praetorium where a crown of thorns was thrust on his head. He was forced to carry a heavy crossbar on his bleeding shoulders until he collapsed. When they reached the site of crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross and six-inch nails were driven into his forearms just above the wrists. His knees were then twisted sideways so that the ankles could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. He was lifted up on the cross, which was then dropped into a socket in the ground. There he was left to hang in intense heat and unbearable thirst, exposed to the ridicule of the crowd. He hung there in unthinkable pain for six hours while his life slowly drained away. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. The cross was a form of execution which was so cruel that even the Romans eventually abolished it in 337 AD. And Christians believe that the worst thing was not actually the physical torture, as gruesome and horrible as that was, but it was the spiritual pain and suffering that he endured upon the cross. And just as God's ability to experience love is greater than ours, so is his ability to experience pain. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was familiar with suffering. We read how he knew well sorrow, rejection, homelessness, hunger, bereavement, torture, imprisonment. And so this helps us, it comforts us, because it enables us to go to God in our suffering, knowing that he knows what it is to suffer. Maybe some of you think, well, I've tried that. I've tried, yeah, okay, he suffered. So in my suffering, I've tried going to him. But you know what? All I encountered was just silence, nothingness. Well, you know what? Jesus himself knows that feeling too. He knew that cosmic abandonment upon the cross. Throughout his whole life, he'd referred to God as my father. Yet upon the cross, he could only say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's my story. Um, when my father died, I was in the hospital by his bedside, saw him breathe his last, saw my mother stand there, let out this screech of pain that still haunts me to this day. And you have one of those moments where you just think, why? But what happened next, I'll never forget. A nurse came up to me breaking kind of protocol and he put his hand upon my shoulder and he quoted Psalm 23, verse 4 to me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. The cross comforts us. Maybe some of you here today are in suffering right now. Many of you will be. Maybe some of you right now are in a tragedy and maybe some of your friends ask you, how can you believe in a God of love when he allows you to go through what you're going through? Well, the strange thing is for Christians, story throughout 2000 years of history has been actually often our faith becomes stronger in suffering rather than weaker. Because we, we say this is true, it's not just a nice idea. Actually, we experience a comfort from Jesus Christ. That is true, not just of many of us here, I'm sure we could give stories of that, but it's also true of a lady called Kim Fook. Kim Fook, this is Kim Fook here. 
This is one of the best known images of the 20th century. This is the Vietnam War in 1972. The Americans were napalm bombing parts of Vietnam. Her family had been devastated by this bombing raid and she then is running naked towards a photographer with her flesh burning following another bomb in her village. Following this attack, she was hospitalized for 14 months. She had 16 separate operations. And she found herself in this hospital, it's moving, you can see her interviews on YouTube. She found herself crying out, where are you God? Why did you let me suffer that much? I didn't do anything wrong. And she went on in that hospital to find a New Testament and started reading it. And then one day around Christmas in 1982, she went to a church, a bit like today, and she heard a pastor preach, Jesus brings peace and takes away any burden. Jesus brings peace and takes away any burden. In that moment, she experienced the comfort of Christ. She experienced what we're talking about today. And um, she goes on now around the world to speak of the comfort that Christ has given her in her life. It's enabled her, this comfort she's received, to comfort others. And even more amazingly than that, it led her to find out the US Army commander, John Plummer, the guy who dropped the bomb on that day. He pressed the button. She found him and she forgave him. The cross comforts us. It comforts us in our suffering. Secondly then, let's move on to look at how the cross challenges us. The cross challenges us. There's an author called Henry Nguyen. I don't know if anyone likes a bit of reading Henry Nguyen. He's a great author. He tells a story of a family he knew in Paraguay. And uh, there was a father there. He was a doctor. And uh, he was speaking out against the military re regime there and its human rights abuses. And the local police in Paraguay, they took their revenge on him by arresting his teenage son and torturing him to death. Enraged townsfolk wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a huge protest march, but the doctor chose another means of protest. At the funeral, the father displayed his son's body as he had found it in the jail, naked, scarred from the electric shocks and cigarette burns and beatings. And all the villagers filed past the corpse, which lay not in a coffin, but on the blood-soaked mattress from the prison. It was the strongest protest imaginable, for it put injustice on grotesque display. And in many ways, that's what the cross does for us as a human race. It challenges us. It shows us what we do as a human race to love and beauty and truth. We kill it. We destroy it. I remember being in an opticians a few years ago and a guy was wearing a t-shirt that said, if Jesus returns, we'll kill him again. And I had two thoughts. One was, no, you won't because he'll return in power. But actually, if he returned as a human again in weakness, yeah, humanity would. We haven't evolved in that sense. And so God kind of 
exposes us at the cross. He shows us what we're really like. The secret's out, if you like. We can't hide it anymore. The human race is not good. A guy called Warren Worsby expressed it like this. We permit our suffering to blind us to the real cause of suffering in this world. Human rebellion against God. He says there's something worse than suffering, and that is sin. That's our attitude towards God, our rebellion against him. We don't want him to be king. We want to be king. He says, we shed tears, and rightly so, for a loved one killed in an accident. But too often we don't weep for the drunken driver who caused the accident. And it's very easy, isn't it, to blame God for all the suffering in the world. But actually the cross challenges us because it helps us to see how we're to blame. We can see this directly through things like murder, rape, wars. It's, it's obvious. It's humanity. We can see it indirectly through starvation. There's plenty of food to go around for the seven point whatever billion people on the planet. There's plenty. Yet still people are starving to death. And yet there are many of us in the West who are sick because we eat too much. Or what about volcanoes and tsunamis and things like that? Surely that's all God's fault. Well, actually, there's much human blame there too. Buildings often collapse because they're built shoddily. Or they're built on fault lines that we know exist, but we still build there for greed. Or the warning systems for tsunamis are actually in place. Many countries have them, but they don't provide them for other countries to make necessary action when tsunamis come. And the Bible actually teaches us that creation itself is in a state of dysfunction because of our rebellion against God, because of sin. Maybe some of you think, well, this doesn't really rub, because I get, okay, yeah, there's some responsibility, but really, me? Yeah, you, me, all of us have caused suffering in this world. I remember, I just remembered last week, when I was a kid, having a fight with my brother over the remote control, I bit his hand to release his hand from that remote control. No one taught me how to do that, but I did it. All of us have caused others to suffer in many different ways. Maybe we can say, well, okay, fair enough, I can take some responsibility, but surely God could intervene. Surely he could manipulate situations and circumstances well actually no he can't really because if he intervened once he would have to do it again and again it would lead to a world in which according to c.s lewis nothing important ever depended on human choice god honors our freedom And so the cross challenges us then, not only that much suffering is our fault, but also it challenges us not to camp up in bitterness and resentment against others and against God when we suffer. Because although we deserve to be punished by God because of the suffering we've caused, he instead came to suffer for us. The cross challenges us. And this works out in real lives. I came across recently an amazing story of a lady called G. Walker from your very own Liverpool. Amazing story, an amazing woman. In 2005, 
her son, Anthony Walker, was standing at a bus stop. 18 years old, young black man with his white girlfriend. And just because he had a white girlfriend, two local white men chopped Anthony to death at the bus stop with an axe. G. Walker went on television and radio and she publicly forgave the murderers. Outside the court, Mrs. Walker with her daughter, Dominique, who'd gone to school with Taylor said, do I forgive them? At the point of death, Jesus said, I forgive them because they don't know what they did. I've got to forgive them. I still forgive them. My family and I still stand by what we believe, forgiveness. What a testimony, what a story. So the cross comforts us just as it did that victim of the bomb, knowing that Christ knows what it is to suffer. But the cross also challenges us because the cross says that we deserve to be punished for the suffering we've caused, yet Christ suffers in our place. And so it frees us from bitterness and resentment and enables us to show grace even when we're suffering to others. So the cross comforts us, the cross challenges us, but the cross also calls us. The cross also calls us. How does the cross call us in our suffering? Two points here. Firstly, we can look at the cross and see that God has a plan to use suffering. God has a plan to use suffering. I don't care what suffering you're going through, there is purpose in it. There is purpose in it. Don't believe the lie that it's meaningless. It's not. There's purpose in it. How on earth can we say that? Christ dying upon the cross, according to the Christian, is the most unjust suffering that has ever happened upon planet Earth. Because he did not deserve anything. He's the only one to live a completely pure life. Yet he went to the cross. And at this most evil point in the whole of human history, though, God was behind it. It wasn't as if the Father in heaven was like, ah, oh, man, I've killed my son. I didn't see that one coming. He planned and purposed it before creation. The most unjust suffering in the world, yet God planned it. He foreordained it. He purposed it. And if you're anything like me, that blows your mind and you can't quite understand it. And that's good because that means it's from God. <laughs> but actually it helps us know that there's purpose in our pain. And so it calls us to follow Christ. It gives us a sense of hope that actually our pain is not meaningless. And even though we're going through perhaps horrible valleys, we know that although maybe man is bringing it for bad, God is allowing it for our good. I was uh, out with my daughter a couple of summers ago a few years ago now, she dropped her ice cream and I picked it up and it had horrible bits of skank from the floor all around it and it was kind of really in there. And I thought, man, and she was in floods of tears. We were too far from the shop to go back. And I thought it was one of those dad moments where you just got to take the hit. <laughs> what does my daughter do? She goes from quite teary to... Oh my gosh, even more Terry. Dad's now eating my ice cream. Not only was it on the floor, but Dad's now eating my ice cream. Woo! How dare you? How often in our lives we go through some stuff and we think, how dare you, God? What on earth are you doing? What are you playing at? 
the cross helps us know that actually he's working good in our lives. And although we don't understand it, he is. He's often like the, do- the doctor that kind of pins us down and breaks us a little bit to heal us. We can probably see this in parts in our life. Um, a guy called Augustine said it like this, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to suffer no evil to exist. I'm sure some of us who've been through trials and been through horrible times, we can look back and say, actually, in a weird way, I'm a little bit grateful for what happened because it's changed me. I'm better for it. Charles Dickens said it like this, suffering has been stronger than all other teaching and has taught me to understand. I have been bent and broken, (laughs) but I hope into a better shape. And you know, that doesn't mean that we understand it all. There's horrible situations. My dear friend Chris's situation. I don't know. (laughs) Shrugged my shoulders, as many of us are. What on earth is God doing? But one day it will become clear. One day he'll explain everything. And we'll say, aha, there was purpose. I get it. I get it. But the cross calls us to follow him through our suffering and pain, knowing there's purpose in the pain that we're going through. Second point, he has compensated for it. He has compensated for it. The cross has paid the price for our sin, for our rebellion against God. That's what Christians believe. We believe that Jesus has died in our place for our sin. And because he's died for us, he's opened heaven up for us. And that means that we get to spend eternity with him. And I'm sure it might take 10 million years into eternity, but there will be one day at least where we go, fair enough, you've compensated for that suffering, for that short little blip upon planet Earth that I had. You've more than compensated for it, actually, Father. And he will compensate for everything you've been through. It's almost like the more suffering you go through now, the more he's going to compensate for it into eternity. And, and we see some of that now, don't we? We see the inbreaking kingdom of God. We celebrate healings among us. We celebrate freedom and liberty that he brings in the now. But we also have this future hope that one day every tear wiped. And so we follow him. The cross calls us. It gives us this sense of hope. It's not meaningless. And he's going to compensate for it one day. If you don't believe me, I'd like you to believe Horatio Spafford. <laughs> I love that name, Horatio Spafford. Uh, He was um, uh, born around the 19th century, early 19th century. He was a wealthy Chicago lawyer with a thriving legal practice. He had a beautiful home, see him here, a wife, four daughters and a son. He was a devout follower of Jesus. Uh, He hung out with people like D.L. Moody, Ira Sankey and other Christians of the day. And at the very height of his financial and professional success, Horatio and his wife, Anna, suffered the tragic loss of their young son from scarlet fever, aged four. Shortly thereafter, on October the 8th, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed almost every real estate investment that Spafford had. So he's lost one child, he's then lost pretty much his whole business. And in 1873, Spafford scheduled a boat trip to Europe in order to give his wife and daughters a much-needed holiday and time to recover from the tragedy. 
And he also went uh, to join Moody and Sankey on an evangelistic campaign in England. You know, he wanted to go and preach the gospel. But as he's preaching the gospel, Spafford sent his wife and daughters ahead of him for this holiday while he remained in Chicago. And several days later, he received notice that his family's ship had encountered a collision. All four of his daughters drowned. Only his wife had survived. And with a heavy heart, Spafford boarded a boat that would take him to his grieving Anna in England. Just imagine having to go to your wife. And just after the boat passed the place where the boat had sunk, he went below deck and he penned these very now famous words that we sometimes sing. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio now knew that although he had lost his children, his business, he knew that God was not a stranger to suffering. He too had seen his son die upon a cross. He knew that although in that moment in that boat he was overwhelmed by grief, he knew that Christ had more than compensated for him by dying for him and making a way for him to be united to him. He looked to the cross he found comfort, he found challenge, and he found a call to follow Christ no matter what. And when we see the cross afresh, we receive this comfort, we receive this challenge, we receive this call. And there may just be one person here today who wants to respond. You've been here and God is just nailing you and saying, I love you. Don't hold up suffering as an objection. I love you. And if, just ask if we close our eyes, if that's okay, just to honour that person if they're there. We're not into pressure here. But if that's you today, you just want to say yes to Jesus. You want to say yes to following Jesus, even though that may include suffering and trial. If you want to do that today, if you're happy to, just put your hand up right now. And we'd love to just pray with you and give you some books.